you to take your Bibles. Let's open up in 2 Samuel chapter 13. 2 Samuel chapter 13. Now, we're going to move a little, um, and this is not one of those sermons where I'm going to read everything that I'm going to talk about at the beginning. This is one where I'm going to have to kind of plug it in there um, as we go. And, and the reason for that is we are going to try to cover all the way through chapter 20 without getting bogged down into one little detail or another. Um, as I mentioned, we had covered the episode with David and Bathsheba, uh, and also David's um, Nathan confronting David, and then David's uh, repentance and and his uh, more or less restoration into a right relationship with God. Um, and, and I remind you of that because that would not have been a immediate process. That would have been something that would have taken some time. Um, and so we are to understand that time moved forward, um, maybe even significantly moved forward, because what we see is a, um, what we're going to be looking at today is a series of events that happens, kind of one right after the other, although this even is mostly a decade that, that, that we're going to be covering, where David's life, his family, uh, and, and, and to a large extent, his reign comes under intense consequences because of the things that he had done. Um, the reality is David made a bad choice on a rooftop one evening. That choice led to a series of consequences that harmed him, that harmed his family, that harmed Israel. And what we see happen here is actually generational. It goes through for generations what David had done. Now, the, 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 the scarlet thread in this is that God had made a promise to David that he would always have a descendant on the throne. So even though David has sinned and God has punished him and has allowed these consequences that we're going to talk about to happen, there is still a redemptive thread in this because God has made a promise. And God's keeping that promise, not necessarily because David has been perfect, but because God is perfect. Now, as I go into this, people have venerated David as almost some kind of saint. Uh, David was a man, just like any of the rest of us. He, he, he made mistakes. He was carried about by sometimes pride, sometimes lust, sometimes just not really paying attention and caring the way that he should about a situation. He was a man that made mistakes. However, God does pile on David more praise and adoration than he does for nearly any other human being. And these are the words of God saying that he is my servant. He is a man after my own heart. And so David was a righteous man. It's fair to say that he was a righteous man. And, and so as we look at this, what we're really seeing is a righteous man who's made a mistake and now he is attempting to walk with God as he goes through those consequences and through the things that happened. Now, as you, if you were to just slowly flip through the Psalms, um, David wrote a lot of those. Um, and so when you're looking at the Psalms, you know, it'll say Psalm 23, a Psalm of David. 
Well, the words right under, it might say to the choir master, or it might say a Psalm of David when, and then give you a historical context. That's also part of the Bible. That's not like editor's notes that, that people have put in recently. That's part of actual scripture. And so that's telling you where these things came from. And so if you just slowly flip through the Psalms, what you're going to see is that David wrote a lot of worship. He wrote a lot of times he recorded his prayers, prayers when he was surrounded by his enemies, when he was attacking or being attacked. He wrote Psalms during this series that we're about to study when he had to leave Jerusalem because of one of his sons. He wrote a Psalm about that. And so what we're going to see is that David was a man of worship. He was a man of prayer, but he made some mistakes and he's dealing with some of the fallout and the consequences of that. And so where we're going to kind of start is the fact that, that David's sin became a pattern in the lives of his sons. And so that's that's where we're going to begin. So the sermon in a sentence is this, God is merciful and forgives our sin, but he does not remove every consequence. So I'm actually going to get into the first point before I read uh, the, the passage that I want to read to you this morning. Um, so we're going to talk first about the sins of the father. Um, David's oldest son at that particular time, Amnon, um, he is the heir apparent. He demonstrates that the sins of his father have imprinted on him, meaning what David did, Amnon is going to do, but there's a different context here. See, he has an unholy desire for his half-sister Tamar, uh, and much like his father, he doesn't resist the temptation. Now, I'll be honest with you, I had to go look up a, a family tree for David when we started getting into some of these names, because I was trying to figure out, okay, so Amnon is whose son, and um, we're, we're, Tamar is whose daughter, and who's her brother, and, and where did all this come from? Well, Amnon is the oldest son. And so um, Tamar is actually the daughter of, of David's fourth wife, but he had no children with his first wife. Uh, that was Saul's daughter. And, and, and she was barren because the, the Bible says because of her attitude towards David when he was worshiping. So um, what we see is, is that this is a half-sister situation. The Bible makes it clear that she's a beautiful, beautiful young lady. Um, and what I will point out is that she is presented as completely pure in this entire situation. Um, in fact, she is presented as a woman who not only knows the law, like in great detail because of the, some of the things that she says, we see that she's aware of it, but she's doing her very best to follow it. So she's doing everything that she is supposed to do. In fact, the only thing about her that Amnon didn't like before this sin takes place is the fact that she was pure, that she was a virgin. If she had not been a virgin, he would have done what he wanted to do and never batted an eye. But because she was a virgin, he didn't know how to handle this. He didn't know how to go about this. Now, he had a friend. The Bible, it, it, it describes him as a shrewd man, not a compliment. Um, he comes up with a plan to help Amon get alone with Tamar, his half-sister. And so this plan, it, it, it's pretty devious. He pretends to be sick. David comes and visits him and he says, you know what, the only thing that's going to make me better is if Tamar comes and visits me and makes some bread in my house and feeds it to me. Well, he sets up this whole little charade where she comes and makes bread and he, he won't come to the table and eat it. He's too sick to get out of bed. And so he says, everybody's got to leave and you got to sit right here and hold my head and feed me bread. This is a grown man. Um, and, and this is his sister. And, and she's doing the very best that she can 
Well, anyway, when he gets everybody out, that's when he begins to do his, his terrible thing. So Tamar does everything she possibly can to stop this before it goes too far. She makes references to scriptures. I'm not going to have time to go through everything that she references and all the ways that this connects back to the Old Testament law, but everything she had, a theologian couldn't have wrote a better statement or a response to what she was about to do. Uh, we'll just leave it at that. So I'm going to read you 2 Samuel uh, chapter 13, verse 11 through 13. It says, but when she brought them near to eat, near him to eat, that's the bread, um, he took hold of her and said to her, come, lie with me, my sister. She said to him, no, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? As for you, you would be as, uh, as, as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. So I want you to notice here, first of all, when, when, when he says, hey, you know, come lie with me, he's trying to tempt her in that moment, um, and she says no. So that's, that's the first thing that we, we see here. Um, she says, no, my brother, literally, no, my brother. Um, and then the next word is also no, no, don't violate me. Now, I will point out that this language uh, that is used here is totally different than the language that is used between David and Bathsheba. Um, this word violate could, could be translated into, you know, essentially rape. And so we understand that she's saying, no, my brother, no, do not violate me for such thing is not done in Israel. It's another negative. Do not do this outrageous thing. She says no four times. And in the Hebrew, the word no is actually there. When we put it in English, we put, you know, do nots and things like that. But in Hebrew, she says no four times. That's enough. Once enough. But she says four times, no, 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 no. Don't do this. And what she says is go to my father. Now, this seems crazy. Go to my father. He will not withhold me from you. Now, Amon had actually already kind of considered that, but the reality is Amon maybe could have went to David and made an argument based on Abraham and Sarah because they were actually half-brother and half-sister. Uh, he might could have gotten this thing done, uh, but he didn't think that he could. But either way, he's going to ignore um, this, this whole thing. So he tries to tempt her. Um, she says no four times. Um, but the, the, the reality is... Um, Amon would not listen to reason. He was far past listen to this biblical statement, listen to this thing, um, because the, the, the illusion, if, if you'll recall, the illusion is, is to the Canaanites that mistreated one of Abraham's daughters. That's the illusion that she keeps making, that you're going to be like one of the Canaanites. You're going to be like one of the horrible ones if you do this. And so, like I say, she, she laced this whole thing with scripture and just Hebrew history, um, but, but he didn't listen to any of that. So after this heinous sin, the thing that Ammon did, his heart completely changes towards Tamar. It's totally different now. He had loved her with this burning passion, or that's what he thought that it was. He had loved her. He had desired her in every way possible. But as soon as it's over, look at what happens next. So this is 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 15 through 17. It says, then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that he hate, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. 
I'm going to let that sentence sink in just a minute because there's a lot of that going on. But he hated her worse than he had loved her before. That's what's being said there. And Ammon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong and sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Boy, this is harsh. This is hard-hearted. He hated his sister more than he had loved her before. We see that it wasn't love. The way that he's treating her indicates he never really loved her. Um, that he just he just had he just had 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 lust for her. Now, so here's the thing: what she says in this part, it's going to be worse than what you've already done. What she means is it's going to be worse for all of us than than what you've already done was just bad for me. Her life is ruined when he makes that choice. When he makes that choice to violate her, her life is ruined. But what she's saying is, you're going to make it bad for me. You're going to make it bad for you. You're going to make it bad for our brothers and sisters. You're going to make it bad for David. You're going to make it bad for the country. If you send me out like this, this thing's going to blow up. That's what she's saying. And so what was the option? Well, what she was suggesting at this point was that he obey the Old Testament law. So the Old Testament law at that point, if a man violates a woman that's, a, that's a not betrothed to anyone, that's a whole different conversation. She wasn't betrothed to anyone. She wasn't promised away. Um, she was a virgin. If he was to violate her, then he had to marry her and pay a financial penalty. That's where he was, and that's what she was saying at this point. You've already done this. You have to obey the law this point. But Amon, he just simply doesn't do this. Like he sends her away. He doesn't care about her at all. He was just carried away. And so what we actually see here is that Tamar, she would go on to live with her brother um, Absalom, who's kind of the main character for the rest of this story. She goes on to live with her brother Absalom. She lives as a desolate woman with no hope of marriage or family. So what does that mean? So she was a royal daughter. And as a royal daughter, David could marry her off to the prince of some other kingdom or, or something that would have been of, 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 of benefit. All marriages were arranged anyway, so that isn't as horrible as it might sound to our Western, you know, 21st century ears. Um, but she could have been married off to some other king or some other prince and made peace for the land and maybe brought prosperity back to Israel. But instead, she's no longer good for a marriage prospect. In fact, not even a wealthy Israelite would marry her after she had been violated. So, and, and again, look, this is, this is a long time ago. This is a thousand BC when this is happening. I know that we've had some, some different thought processes in terms of what a victim deserves and how a victim should be treated, but I'm telling you how it was in a thousand BC. She could not be married. She could not be accepted in society. She would have to live as a, as a widow, almost as a leper. She was a social outcast from this point forward. And so, Absalom, her brother, actually does some very kind things for her. So I want to read you 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 20 through 22. It says, And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Ammon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Ammon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. So when they lock the door and she's, she's outside the house, 
David gave, like, rewarded his virgin daughters with these beautiful robes that had long sleeves and they were ornate in every way, embroidery, um, jewels, things like that. I mean, it was a beautiful kind of a, a, a designation of who they were. And so they would have had free reign to kind of go about the city and do their business. Uh, but she is cast out of, of Amon's house, and so she rips her sleeves off she puts uh, ashes on her head, and it says that she goes out wailing and screaming loudly um, because this thing has happened to her, and her life is now over, right? And she knows that her brother is also ruining his life and pretty much ruining the whole family. And so she goes about this way. So what we see is that uh, Absalom finds her and brings her into his house. And, and, and so when he says these things, you almost say, wow, you know, you're kind of missing the emotional point here because he says... Has Amon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, sister. Um, I'm going to say that um, if you are in the room with a very distraught and upset woman, and you look her in the eyes and say, hold your peace, sister, you'd better get ready to duck, because peace is the last thing that's going to be happening in your life at that moment. But anyway, so he says, hold your peace, sister. Do not take this to heart. I also struggled with that phrase, do not take this to heart, because I, you, you see it actually a couple of times in the chapters that we're going to be covering. And what this doesn't mean is don't take it seriously. What he's saying is don't dwell on it. It's a terrible thing, but don't dwell on it. Don't let it dominate your thought processes. Don't let it dominate how you live your life. And so he's telling her not to dwell on it. Again, these are hard words. But what happens is Absalom allows her to live in his household for the rest of her life. So the two things that probably a, a uh, 1000 BC woman was looking for out of marriage was safety and a place to dwell. And her brother actually was able to offer that. He couldn't marry her. He couldn't let her get married or offer her for marriage, but he could give her a place to live and he could promise that she would always have his protection. And that's what a woman was looking for back then. And so he was able to offer that. So this is a noble thing that Absalom does. And honestly, since I've read all of this like bunches of times this week, I don't like Absalom anymore. But in this moment, he is a, he's being a good brother. He is being what he's supposed to be and doing what's right. He just veers off the path of righteousness because he holds this grudge. So, and, and this is a really, really dark sentence when you think about it. He says, but Absalom spoke to Ammon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. So there is, there's, a, there's a grudge here, and he's hanging on to this grudge. He is holding on to this grudge. Um, and it's something that's going to harm him. I will also mention that David was angry, but we don't see any activity from David. Remember the prayer that we read, uh, Psalm 51, where he said, you know, restore to me the joy of my salvation, then I'll go teach the transgressors how to turn back to you. That might have been a good time to take that lesson that you learned, David, and go tell Ammon. So what's going on that, 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 that I can see is that David's sons are quite entitled. They're used to getting their way. Amon probably, uh, Tamar was probably not the first woman that was a victim to Amon. Just wasn't. That just, she probably wasn't the first one that he had, he had went after. Um, but also what we're going to see with Absalom is that, that he's used to getting his way. And when, when things don't go the way he expects them to go, he takes um, things into his own hands. 
So what we're going to be doing, I'm going to kind of summarize several chapters now and not really read any more of it because there's so much detail there, um, but I'm going to try to summarize some of these things. So um, two years after this, these events have taken place, two full years, David's done nothing. David has not charged uh, Ammon with any crime. Um, and in fact, the, what the law said at this point is that Ammon was guilty and he should have had to pay 50 shekels. For a king's son, that's pocket change, but at least that would have been a semblance of justice. Well, anyway, so David does nothing that we can see. Ammon just lets this simmer for about two years. Um, and, and after that, Absalom finds the perfect opportunity to revisit Amnon's sins when he hosts a celebration for a successful sheep shearing. Um, remember, it's a very agricultural society, and so uh, Absalom had a herd of uh, uh, sheep, and he had had them sheared, and apparently he had gotten a good price for the wool, and so it was time to celebrate. And so he goes to David, and he says, you and all your officials come with me to this place, and let's celebrate because I had this sheep shearing. Um, and David says, no, we would be a burden to you. We don't want to come and, you know, take up your space and, and, and drink your wine and all that kind of stuff. And so David refuses to go. Well, Absalom then says, well, Send Amnon in your place. Now, why would, would Absalom ask for Amnon? Well, Amnon was the heir apparent. He was the, the, the eldest son, and so he was to, could be a representative for David. That's why that's the, the ruse why he asked for him. He wanted to kill him, is why he asked him. But he, he was definitely trying to put on this ruse that this is kind of a royal thing. This was a big deal. And so I want Amnon to go and to, to celebrate. And so David is suspicious. He says, why do you want Amnon to go? Uh, but Absalom continues to ask and, and, and plead. And so uh, Amnon and all of David's sons actually go with Absalom to have this celebration based on um, the fact that he was able to shear some sheep. Well, uh, Absalom gives some orders to his men that when Amnon is merry with wine let the reader understand, um, that they are to kill him at that time. They're, they're to, to, to take him out. Well, actually, what's interesting is the servants seem to hesitate. And, and, and um, uh, th this is why I looked at that thing this morning in Sunday school. So Am Amnon or, uh, Absalom says, be strong and be courageous. Have I not commanded you? Well, I heard that all my life in, in, in the first chapter of Joshua, and I thought that it was like I'm repeating myself. That's not what it actually means. What Absalom is saying, it's my command. You're the hand, but I'm giving the command. So it's all on me. That's what Absalom was saying. It's, all, it's, it's, it's my problem. Because all these servants said, no, we saw what David does when somebody kills royalty. When people killed Saul, he killed people. When people kill any other royalty, he kills people. So we don't want to be the people that kill his own son. But Absalom said, no, it's my command. The blood's going to be on my head. And so he has Amnon killed. So they're at this party, and as soon as it happens, it says that all of David's sons got on their mules and they went away. That just, in my mind, that's comical. But anyway, so they get on their mules and they just all ride away. They go scatter in separate ways. Now, what happens next is that a messenger reaches David and says, all your sons are dead. Absalom killed all your sons. And so David mourns. And then um, the same guy that gave Amnon the plan in the first place with Tamar, tells David, don't take this news to heart, only Amnon is, is dead. Now, I believe the same guy may have helped Absalom come up with the plan to, to, to kill Amnon. He just was a shrewd guy, and, and he's just 
he's not the kind of guy you want around him. But anyway, so David finds out that it's only Amnon that's dead, but that is still very disturbing to him. Um, and so the first report he receives, all of his sons are killed, but eventually he finds out that it was only um, Amnon because Absalom was avenging his sister Tamar. So Absalom actually flees um, to the, uh, the land of uh, Geshur, which is actually where his grandfather lived. So his mother's um, father is the king in Geshur, and so he goes there, um, and um, David goes in because he believes that David's going to be in wrath. So uh, scripture never says that David was even going to attack or, or go after Absalom in any kind of way, um, but um, he, he is in a deep grief for like three years. So I'm going to read you one more passage. This is 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 38. It says, So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed, that's David, longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. So what this means is that finally David had forgiven Amnon. Uh, he was at the point of forgiveness. He was ready to reconcile Absalom. He had forgiven Absalom. He was ready to reconcile with Absalom because he was finally over the death of his son Amnon. Because ultimately it was a justice of a sword. It was revenge, um, and it was it was not what the law required, but it was something. Um, so what we can see here, and we can already begin to see this, the sins of David are deepened and they're repeated uh, by his sons. So it, it just gets worse and worse as it goes. Sin does not just go away. If left unchecked, it compounds into something so terrible that no one could even imagine its destructive power. So when we look at uh, Amnon, he should have known better. He should have known better. That's his sister. He should have known better. But he continued to dwell on that. Um, actually, the part of the story I didn't read you, he actually got physically ill because he couldn't be with Tamar. And so that was a, that was a terrible thing that, that he took it that far. Absalom, on the other hand, fostered this, this hatred and this, this anger towards Amnon. It would be very easy to hold a grudge against somebody like that. Very easy to hold a grudge. But we understand that vengeance is the Lord's. What, what Absalom missed was vengeance from the king, justice from the king. David didn't give vengeance. David didn't give justice in this thing, and that was a horrible thing. And so that's kind of what we're looking at there as we kind of keep going. So now we're going to look at the rebellion of a son. Absalom is not done with this. So this brings Joab back into the story. Now, Joab has been a commander of, of soldiers for David throughout pretty much this whole story. Um, and, and Joab is, at this point, Joab is trying to play the, the role of, of reconciler. He knows that the king wants to reach out to Absalom. He knows that Absalom wants to come home. Um, so what he does is he, he uses a, a, hires a woman to tell a story. And so this event is eerily similar to the visit of Nathan after David's sin with Bathsheba. Um, this woman, uh, Tekoa, uses an illustration presented as reality uh, to help the king see what he must do. In fact, her story parallels almost exactly with the story of Cain and Abel. Two brothers alone in a field, one overpowers and strikes the other down. Well, then the other is afraid that he's going to receive vengeance, and God basically gives a decree that if anyone takes vengeance, they're going to receive vengeance sevenfold. And God, I mean, David makes the same decision that God makes, that, that you know, your, your, your brother, your son, because to 
Tekoya is supposed to be the, the mother in this case. This didn't happen. This is just an illustration, but um, what she says is she's the mother, and so he says, anybody that comes after your son, send him to me, and he will do justice. And so in that moment, then he says, did Joab send you? He sees Joab's fingerprints all over this because what Joab is trying to do is get David to see, you know what? Yes, one of your sons killed another one of your sons. But if, if, if everybody gets to kill somebody when somebody dies, everybody's going to be dead. It's kind of like an eye for an eye leaves everybody half blind, right? And so the reality is David sees that it's time to bring his son home. It's time to send for Absalom. So at the end of this two years, uh, David finally agrees to, uh, or, or at the end of the three years, David allows Absalom to come back into the city, but he actually doesn't see Absalom. Absalom goes back to his house, but he's not welcome in the king's house. So he lives three years there. Um, during that time, Absalom is now the oldest son. So David's second oldest son must have died at some point uh, because there was another son in between uh, Amnon and Absalom. But now Absalom is the oldest son, so he's technically the heir to the throne, and it describes him as handsome. It says from, from the soles of his feet to the top of his head, he was handsome. That's a pretty boy. Um, and it also says that he had three sons and one daughter. Of course, he named his daughter Tamar, and she was a beautiful woman. Um, so that just kind of keeps bringing up and reminding people of the, the, the sorrow and, and everything that happened with uh, Amon and Tamar. Um, but it also says that he had thick hair, so thick and, and I didn't even catch this at first, but so thick that he had his hair cut every year. Um, now, there were two reasons that an Israelite man should have his hair cut. They were both to do with service to God. Neither one of them were just for his convenience. He was actually supposed to let it grow unless he was cutting it for God. So that shows that he wasn't following God's word and God's will. So it's just kind of an interesting thing there. So And it's something you don't pick up on unless you know like all of the Torah. And I had a book that told me that because I, did, I didn't remember the haircut thing. Um, that's why I don't cut my beard. Anyway, um, after two years, uh, David actually brings Absalom back. There's a whole story there about burning fields and things like that. But anyway, he brings Absalom back. Visit with me. Talk with me. So Absalom bows before the king. The king kisses Absalom and everything is back to hunky-dory. Not at all. So as soon as there is a reconciliation, it says that Absalom went out and got him some chariots, and he got him some men to run before those chariots. So he got himself to looking pretty impressive and kind of kingly-like. And then it says that he stood in the gate, um, and anybody that came seeking justice uh, from the king, they met with Absalom first, and he'd take him by the hand, he'd listen to their story, and he says, if only I was king in Israel, you could receive justice. And he would bless them and they would go on their way. Well, two things. One, he's preventing them from going to the king so the king can give them justice. And two, he's stealing their hearts away. So he systematically does this over the course of five years. He takes the hearts of the people of Israel away. This is a powerful thing. This is the man that killed Goliath. And now all of a sudden they don't trust David because of Absalom and the things that he said. So he would have been a very persuasive guy. So he, he basically turns the people away from David. And then he goes down to Hebron. He says it's a religious ceremony. It's something a vow that he took. But ultimately what he's doing is going to Hebron where David first became king and he is establishing himself as king. And so when he does that, he, he takes hostage some of David's advisors and other people are his followers. And so he goes and has himself declared as king in, in Hebron and starts moving back towards Jerusalem. Well, 
what actually happens is, is, is David is a brilliant military strategist, but he's caught flat-footed here because he finds out that most of the men of Israel, meaning most of the military, they're following Absalom now. And so he actually takes off with his household. For a king to take off with his household, that's no small feat. That would have been six, 700 people that he had to move. So he's moving all of the people out of Jerusalem. If you'll remember, uh, lame people and beggars could have defended uh, Jerusalem, is what David was told. Um, but he doesn't leave a garrison there in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a walled city. It was set up on a high hill. It would have been easy for him to defend it, to leave a garrison, and, and let Absalom try to take it. And if we just notice history just a little bit, I'm not going to get into it, but if we notice history, nobody ever just went and beat Jerusalem. They all had to lay siege to it because it was a powerful city. It was a city that God gave them. Um, but David just leaves. And, and the only people that he leaves in Jerusalem to kind of see about his business is 10 concubines. They're women, so they can't be involved in military. They, they can't be a threat in any way to Absalom. What David is saying is, I want peace, not war. And he leaves Jerusalem. Well, along the way, there are some people that more or less um, try to provoke David. Uh, people actually try to um, get one over on him. So somebody tries to convince him um, that a, a son of Jonathan has betrayed him. Uh, someone else just comes out and just curses him and says all these terrible things about him. Um, but in the middle of all of this, David is, is, is acting wisely. And again, I, I told you, David writes a, a psalm during this time that is in Scripture. So it seems like his heart is with the Lord during this time. So Absalom actually comes into Jerusalem. Now in his court, and he's calling himself king, in his court he's got one of David's oldest advisors that everybody trusted and everybody believed in, but also David has a spy in Absalom's court. So this old trusted advisor tells Absalom, first thing you need to do is sleep with all of the king's concubines publicly. And so he puts a tent on the roof of David's house and he does that to make sure that everybody knows there's no reconciliation between Absalom and David. And this was a terrible thing that he did. And, and it's just heinous what, how he goes about this. So afterwards, then the, the old trusted advisor says, you need to take your men now and you need to go after David now. Well, the spy that David has in there says, no, David will be ready for this. You need to wait a couple of days and send an army. Well, of course, go now is the answer. Of course, while David is running and retreating and crossing rivers and, and, and he's got, you know, everything's all mixed up and tangled up. He's got servants. He's got priests. He's got family. He wasn't ready to fight then, but he would be in a couple of days. And so, um, the, 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 the spy that he has actually sends word back to David telling him what the battle plan is, and so David is prepared. So when Absalom comes out with his armies, he is soundly defeated. So here's the bad thing. Absalom, in the kind of the chaos, David had told all of his, um, his, his generals, go gently with Absalom, meaning don't kill him if you find him. Well, Absalom is, is already fleeing. He's running away. He's on his donkey again. And uh, mule, sorry. Uh, so he's riding on his mule. He's running away. And his head gets stuck in a tree. And so the donkey keeps going. And, and, and Absalom's dangling there. And he's not like asphyxiating. He's just hanging there, right? And so uh, Joab find, or Joab's men find him. Uh, and Joab gives orders. And they all like stab him in the heart with spears. And Joab goes and finishes him off just to make sure they throw him in a deep pit and throw rocks on him. And then they go back and report to the king that Absalom is dead. 
Absalom is just a tragic figure. Just as a person, he is a tragic figure. Um, he deals with some difficult circumstances. How would any of us handle the things that he had to deal with? The sins of his father, the sins of his brother, the, the, everything. But he makes terrible choices in the middle of all of it. Um, and so he's just this figure that, that, you know, as I've just read this over and over and over, I thought, I don't like Absalom, but I do feel sorry for him because he was a guy that, that um, there was a time that he did what was right and he just veered off the path. And it's a sad thing to see that happen. So David grieves so deeply for Absalom. He goes into this deep grief and Joab is the one that comes to him again. And, and again, Joab is, he's that guy that's so fiercely practical that he has no emotions. He's that guy. And, and so Joab goes to David and he says, hey, you're grieving over the death of your son and what you're doing is making it shameful to all the people who fought to put you back on the throne. You're, you're, you're actually making them shameful for that. And for those that died, you're disrespecting them because you're so concerned about your son. And so David, I believe he just puts on a face at this point, but he sits at the gate and he begins to judge Israel again, doing what the king is supposed to do. Um, so it's at this point, it's easy to see that the sins of David have been visited not only on his family, uh, but on virtually every house in all of Israel. Everybody's hurting because of the sins and the mistakes that David had did. Sin is never committed in a vacuum. I believe that exact same sentence was in my last sermon or the one before, but, but we need to remember that. When you do something wrong, you're not the only one that's going to reap the consequences for that. It is going to reach out to others. It is going to affect those around us. Whether they are innocent or whether they are guilty, it's going to affect other people. And that's something that we have to recognize. David was finding that out very, very quickly. So let's look at return of the king. We're almost done. So David returns to the city of Jerusalem uh, and begins to receive the vows of the elders of the tribes of Israel once again. Now, it's, it's this kind of fussy thing where the people of Israel tell Judah, hey, you, you are hogging the king. And they're like, we have ten parts, and David, you only have one. Back and forth, it's almost like this kind of weird, like overly devoted thing. They're, they're trying to show their devotion to David. But, you know, and, and David shows great generosity in all of this because all the people that offended him during this time, he forgives them. He doesn't execute them or, or, or even do what would be considered justice in some cases. He just, he lets them go free. Um, but all was not well in Israel. There's yet another rebellion. Uh, a, a man named Sheba leads another rebellion. He says, Israel, we don't have anything to do with this king to your tents. Um, and and so, so Sheba brings a little bit of an army and, and he immediately goes on the run. It's not a rebellion as in there are armies that fight. It's a rebellion as in um, this guy says, I don't like David, and he takes his friends and runs away because he knows David's going to get him. Um, so what happens is David, he may already know what's going on with Joab and, and kind of the, the unfortunate nature that Joab has taken. And, and he's his uncle, by the way. Um, so anyway, Joab actually is replaced by a guy named Amasa. Amasa becomes the, the, the general of Israel. And Joab doesn't like that. Um, and, and, and so here's a reason maybe not to have a beard. So Joab comes up to Amasa on the road because they're going after this rebel. And Joab grabs Amasa by the beard. And it's like he's about to kiss him, which is weird in, in and of its own right. And then he takes a sword and he basically cuts his guts open right there. And so the guy falls down in the road with, you know, and, and it says that he's wallowing in that. Well, the men of David will not follow 
until Amasa is removed from the road. Like they don't put him out of his misery. They let him suffer. And so that's when Joab goes. This, I don't tell you that to gross you out right before lunch, but what I tell you that for is to see that Joab, he's kind of went past it. He's went beyond anything that would be good and righteous. He is now just fiercely practical, doing what he thinks is best. And so he goes, and he goes to the city where the Sheba guy is hiding out, and a woman stops him and says, what do you want here? And he says, well, I want Sheba because he's a rebel. And she says, well, we're going to close the gates, and we'll throw his head out to you because we don't want trouble. And that's exactly what happens. Um, but this last rebellion, it's not like a big deal, but it's just an example of the chaos that followed after David's sinful actions. Remember, before that fateful evening when David's walking around on his roof, he has peace. He has prosperity. He has living children. He does have a bunch of wives, but he doesn't have the kind of trouble that he has after that fact. After that fact, he has enemies, not just outside, but enemies inside. His own family is his trouble. His own people are his trouble. He's dealing with civil war. He's dealing with rebellions. He's dealing with people turning away from him. Families are destroyed. Everything, everybody's worst nightmare is actually coming through in this moment. And so the country's in turmoil for years because of his choices. If you track all of these years, it looks like it was roughly a decade. This episode was at least 10 years long. David ruled for 40 years, but a big chunk of it was tied up with this. I'll say this, it's fair to say that David is still or always was a righteous man, but we can see that even he was no king like Jesus. As I went through all of this, you're probably like, what a mess, what a mess. And, and I read this and I thought, no wonder people watch soap operas. Everything happens. He just has a coma. I mean, it was like everything happens. It just keeps going and going and going. And it's like, how is this, how is this happening? But it's because of sin. It's because of sin. It's because of the way that, that sin gets into our lives and pushes us away from God, and then we just have these terrible consequences that follow. And so that's where David was. He was in the middle of it. He had done something terrible. He had repented of it. God had forgiven him and restored him, but that didn't mean that all the consequences were just brushed away. He still had to live that hard life because of it. And it's one terrible thing after another. But what we have to realize is that all of this just points us to the fact that we need Jesus. David needed Jesus. We all need Jesus. And, and, and let me just speak to sin for a minute. There's not a lot of preaching about sin in this country anymore. God's called us to be holy. He called us to be holy because He's holy. And, and that's, that's the standard. But He has also called us to holiness because sin is terrible and it has consequences. And so holiness is the best life for us. Sin is going to bring problems. Sin is going to bring pain. Sin is going to bring you nothing but trouble. Even if you're a believer this morning and you're certain of your salvation, you still have to strive for a holy life. Stay out of that kind of sin. Stay out of that kind of trouble. The things that, that, that draw us into to hard times, that's sin. And, and those consequences, they're not going to be erased. You might pray a prayer and God might forgive you, but that doesn't mean that those consequences are going away. God has called us out of our old lives into a new life in which we should follow our king. David wasn't always the best example. Most of the time he was, but not always. But Jesus always is the best example. We follow Him. We seek after Him. And He is our Redeemer. He is our Savior. He is our leader. Do what Jesus does. Walk in His steps. 
you read this a passage like this and you think, wow, this is like a soap opera. But it's also like the lives of people that, that, that get mixed up in sin. It's, it's, it's like lives that you would imagine today. Maybe not exactly, but you can see the parallels and the similarities. And, and what I would say is God's call us to holiness, not just because that's the standard, but also because that's what's best for us. It keeps us out of some of these terrible situations. Follow Jesus. Abandon the ways of this world. Abandon your old life. Trust in Him and Him only. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for this time to gather together. And as we look at Your Word, Lord, it's a hard, hard word. It's a, it's a hard thing to see what was such a perfect life and, and such a perfect situation just be devastated by sin. We know that You love David. We know that You love Israel. We know that, that You poured Your blessings out upon them. But we also know that when sin came along, it destroyed so much of what You had built. Father, in our lives today, I believe that each of us have a choice. What kind of life are we going to live? Are we going to live one that honors You, that glorifies You? Or are we going to live a life, Lord, that is just contrary to Your will? I pray that You help us to realize that holiness is its not just a, a, a calling. Holiness, when it's lived, is a blessing. And I pray that You help each of us to have that blessing by living a life totally surrendered to your will, obedient to your word. Let us ignore the, the trappings and the temptations of the world and just follow after you with all of our hearts. I pray that you put that in each of us, that we desire you more than we desire the world, that we love you more than we love even ourselves, that we obey and listen to your word more than we listen to anything else. And then, Lord, I know you will have a people here who are revived, who are ready and willing to go out and serve you. And I pray that you equip us in that manner. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.